now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Hi, everyone. My name is Carol Nestakis. I recently wrote an article for Persuasion in regard to my own family story pertaining to how the criminal justice system and the registry causes so much suffering to whole families. I received a lot of support for my article, but the truth is that the majority of the public would say those on the registry deserve it. That's why I tell my story. The public and the legislators need to know that with these draconian laws, anyone can end up on the registry. Urinating outside, children playing doctor or just being inquisitive, teen sexting, consensual teen sex, or an accidental click on the computer can put you on the registry. The registry is a lifetime punishment. It takes away jobs in homes. It separates families. And those on the registry wear that scarlet letter for the rest of their lives. In my case, I live the registry, even though I'm not officially on it. My son has an intellectual and developmental disability and functions at about the age of 10. He does not know what the registry is. He does not know how to follow all the countless and confusing rules and restrictions. Frankly, the average person cannot either. My son was manipulated into doing something he did not know was a crime. There was no physical contact. And for that, he is a convicted sex offender and on the registry. No accommodations were made for his disability. He now has lost eight years of much needed brain development and socialization. His activities with Special Olympics, scuba diving for the disabled, and his part-time job are all gone now due to the registry. His life is now solitude and boredom, and our family has been destroyed, and all our dreams for the future have been shattered. I do believe the real and dangerous predators out there should be incarcerated. I want all children to be safe. The extreme cases that perpetuated the registry are rare. I have met some wonderful people who made a mistake many years ago, and they just want to have a life, a job, raise their children, and contribute to society. They don't want to be that homeless, jobless person that the public has to support because the registry restricts everything they do. Things need to change. The registry has gotten out of control. Even children are on the registry now. Good people are on the registry who made a mistake years and years ago as a silly teenager who weren't able to make a proper decision yet. It doesn't make anyone safer. It just ruins lives and costs you millions of taxpayer dollars. Something needs to change, and I implore all of you to work to make that happen. Thank you for listening. Carol Nestakis's piece called My Son is No Sex Offender was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, please head to www.persuasion.community. For today's episode, I had a really interesting conversation with Wesley Yang. Wes is a great nonfiction writer who I've known for a long time. Uh, he wrote a very viral article about uh, the cover of New York Magazine called Paper Tiger about the experience of Asian Americans in the United States. And he has a book loosely around that topic called The Souls of Yellow Folk. Wes has also become one of the critics of what he calls the successor ideology. So the successor ideology is his term for what other people might call 
social justice or wokeism or different kinds of terms. So I wanted to probe him on what exactly he means by the successor ideology. It's a conversation that's a little in the weeds at times, it's a little academic at times, but I think it's our best attempt to grapple with trying to understand what exactly is at stake in this strange intellectual moment. It's a demanding conversation, but it is one that I hope you will find rewarding. Wes Yang, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So we've been in conversation on and off for a long time. We know each other at this point for at least a decade or so. But you've really become one of the leading voices in helping us understand some of the intellectual changes that are going on on parts of the left at the moment. You know, there's different words for what's going on, social justice, wokeness. But you've coined a new term, which is the successor ideology. Why did you choose that term? And can you start by explaining to us a little bit what you think this successor ideology is? Yeah, I mean, the term was coined almost sort of inadvertently, right, in the midst of a Twitter exchange. And, you know, Twitter is a medium where I've begun to sort of chronicle the unfolding and the manifestation of what I've come to call the successor ideology. And where I do a lot of actual thinking aloud and sort of thinking in conversation with other people because it is crucially one of the venues where the ideology is most powerfully transmitted and instantiated. And so, you know, there are a lot of terms, as you mentioned, that capture different aspects of it, of how it functions and how to characterize certain aspects of it. But there isn't an overall sort of umbrella term that sort of speaks to the overall at the highest sort of level of generality. And the terms that we do have mm. in many cases are sort of spoiled in their provenance for various reasons, right? Like a term like cultural Marxism, for instance, or sort of the terms like postmodern neo-Marxism, which was coined by Jordan Peterson. Every time somebody coins it, there will be always people sort of denying that it exists in the first place or tracing it to problematic origins of those who coined it in the first place. And so I wanted to have something that would be general, abstract, and a kind of placeholder for a series of different discourses that seem to move in concert with one another. Yeah, and I suppose that in a way, one of the striking things about this term is its emptiness, which is to say that wokeness calls attention to you become awake to injustice. And that in itself seems like an attractive thing but it also perhaps is only an aspect of what is going on at the moment. Social justice, or even like the sort of pejorative social justice warrior, is again about this sort of ideal, you understand it's not about economic justice perhaps, it's not about political justice exactly, it's more about sort of justice in the social realm, but then it might miss some of the ways in which actually people are fighting for economic and political justice, or that things aren't always about justice, they're about things that where justice actually is not the appropriate term. And successor ideology, in a way, can sort of mean everything and nothing, and it just puts the emphasis on how what's happening is different from what went before. So I think the emptiness of it is an attractive feature of it, but it also, of course, makes it a little bit more puzzling. So what do you think the constitutive elements of the successor ideology is? What are its main prongs? I think at the highest level of generality, successor ideology is that which conceives of white supremacist, cis-hetero patriarchy as a unitary system of domination that must be attacked on every front. And so there's a series of different movements that address each one of those aspects 
But there's an overall sense that there's a sort of conceptual unity to those things, such that the attack on the one is the attack on all of the others. So if you look at, for instance, one of the sort of paradigmatic documents of what I think of as a successor ideology, you know, there's a manifesto posted online by the nonprofit organization, or the I think it's actually a for-profit organization that is the sort of institutional anchorage of the Black Lives Matter movement, right? And this is distinct from the the meme and, and distinct from the movement in the street. There's like an actual organization that purports to speak on behalf of the movements and to give it ideological direction and aims. And it sort of speaks about policing and police brutality. But it also says like we were dismantling the nuclear family. It says that no one is free unless the black trans person is free. And when you think of the people who are marching on behalf of this, like in what sense is this their ideology, right? Like in what sense is this is like the population sort of most subject Right. And the answer is that there may be obviously a few people who would take part in those protests who believe all of those things. But the great majority of people who are out in the streets in, in early June or late May don't believe most of those claims. There seemed to be a reason to put them in. And we have to ask about what that reason is. Right. And it's a manifestation of a sort of activist sensibility. So we have a kind of professional activist class that has a particular analysis of the world in the terms that I just described. Right. And it sounds like a very abstruse term. Right. But, you know, sort of we're in the process of litigating whether and to what extent those terms are going to be integrated into K through eight education. And as a result of a prior ideological process whereby the activist class that I have described sort of attained hegemony within schools of education. And there was a move to inculcate this kind of language to make it mandatory to take sort of a class in which one would be sort of mandated to critique cis patriarchy in America. So it's a real thing. So before we get too deep into the manifestations of it, which I'm interested in, I want to understand more about, let me probe this definition a little bit more. So if I'm understanding right, the idea of a successor ideology is that, you know, there's all of these ills in society, some of which you or I might recognize, some of which certainly I think there's some amount of homophobia in society, there's certainly some amount of racism in society and all of those things. But what this is saying is that that is all one huge interlocking scheme of domination. I suppose that this domination isn't an important but unfortunate feature of our society that stops our ideals from being fully realized, which is a sort of traditional liberal way of putting it, but that they actually are the face of our society, that they're the defining feature of our society. Yes. And does it mean then that sort of struggling, I mean, I guess it helps to understand the seemingly existential stakes of otherwise puzzling things, right? I mean, when people think that something that they perceive as a microaggression is incredibly important to defeat and to punish the person who perpetrated it, does that come from the sense that the microaggression is itself an emanation of this vast system of domination and if you can attack the microaggression of the per person who perpetrated it, that is, you know, part of a grand fight against the overall system. Right. It comes from cultural studies, right? It comes from a transition, a succession from a sort of liberal account that emphasizes laws and rights, but like that is fundamentally grounded in individual agency to a more Foucauldian account of the operation of power. And so... I just want to quote something. There was a manifesto that was put out by some organization of black students at Harvard Law, and they spoke about a malleable and insidious racism, which is found in the architecture of expectations 
the ranking of authorities, the sway of circumstance, the nudge of defaults, and the grammar of culture. It's in the norms, customs, precedents, and incentive structures of institutions, jobs, and roles. And so what you see there is a whole other model whereby the attainment of sort of formal equality before the law would leave these structures of domination in place. And, you know, in some ways, it's a kind of theoretical advance of our understanding of the way power operates. In another way, one only has to describe these things to see that there's a kind of danger into making that system all-encompassing and also in proceeding from the assumption that to attack this system anywhere is to attack it everywhere. And so that there's this conflation that's being made between the marchers in Charlottesville, between the Christchurch killer, all of whom can be fairly termed white supremacists under a previous definition, and moving down the scale to, you know, why are the shades of uh, makeup at the counter normed to non-white hues? to why the Oscars are so white. And there's something true about this count of reality at one level of abstraction, but in the attempt to kind of operationalize it, you produce a series of different interventions, some of which make sense, many of which don't make sense. So an example of something that makes sense is to say, like, we have this concept of covering that has sort of emerged out of this ideology, which is that you are held accountable to implicitly white standards of appearance, conduct and normative behavior that will tend to oppress others. And so this proceeds from this idea that like white people end up making the world in their own image and that in so doing, they create a world where white people will by necessity tend to succeed and non-white people by necessity tend to fail. And so a pretty clear example of this is interpreting somebody's cornrows or their natural hair as being like inherently inappropriate for a workplace setting, because there's like a white normative standard implicitly in place. It seems to me that, you know, this is something where I'm very, very sympathetic, right? Yes. Which is to say that obviously, if there is a dominant standard, not just of beauty, but of professionalism, yes. which says that what professional hair looks like is hair that is easy for white people to present with. And so any sort of hairstyle that you can present with as a black person is by definition, unprofessional, unless perhaps you you know wear a very expensive wig or something like that. Then there's a real injustice being done here and a sort of seemingly objective standard that, of course, you have to come to the office looking sort of proper is actually deeply racially coded. Now, that seems to me like an important insight. I guess the question is, why is that part of a successor ideology? Because it seems to me that that's an insight that I can express and want to express from within a liberal point of view, from within the predecessor ideology, I suppose. So it's a very subtle thing, right? It's like when that sort of goes from a particular insight and it ends up encompassing sort of every other aspect, including legitimate aspects of meritocracy, and it's politically contested and very unclear, like at what point that happens. So I guess perhaps the difference is not whether or not we think that our current standards in the United States are discriminatory and unfair, which you know, to some extent they clearly are, to some extent they clearly are not. And then, you know, I think you can have very reasonable debates about whether we're pretty close to being fair or whether we're far away from being fair. And that, again, I think is a debate that we can and should have within the terms of a predecessor ideology. What is striking to me is these documents, right, which you've seen resurfing at various places, including important institutions that say perfectionism is part of white supremacist ideology. And, and what strikes me, of course, about that is that 
I don't think that an entrepreneur in Nigeria or Kenya doesn't worship the written word or, or doesn't believe in perfectionism, right? So societies which are overwhelmingly black clearly endorse those ideals very strongly. And so there's something very odd about rejecting them as being part of white supremacist culture. So again, is it that systemic nature of it? Where does the successor ideology start? Where does sort of the expression of this point bleed into being a part of a successor ideology? It's when we move beyond, as I say, it's a kind of theoretical advance, but like when it becomes totalizing, then we place ourselves into a kind of danger where we lose the capacity to like make meaningful mm -hmm. distinctions. So the example that I like to provide is there is a story in the New York Times about racism at Condé Nast. And this was after the George Floyd protests. And so it was driven by the energy behind that. But the sort of specific incidents, including the sort of firing of the editor of Bon Appetit, didn't actually involve the black people. So they needed to like have some anecdote that would be very telling about the anti-black discrimination at Condé Nast. And the one that they came up with, of course, they interview a lot of people and they put in the thing that is supposed to be like most telling. And the one they came up with was like an assistant who quit because her boss gave her a copy of the Elements of Style. And she interpreted that as a racial microaggression. But of course, a boss, by his nature, can tell his subordinate, like, here's an area where you may need to improve. And it's actually not even clear whether he was saying that this was an area you need to improve. My understanding is, I think I read something about this, that he had given that as a present to all of his assistants in previous years. That may even be the case. But it was presented as this act of racial microaggression, which it probably was not. But it was based upon this idea that there are no objective determinations. All that matters is like the subjective experience of trauma and harm on the individual. And this is like another aspect of the successor ideology. Like this idea that we want to move our understanding of wrongdoing and harm outside the realm where it can be any kind of like objective determination into one where the feelings and the emotions of the person who has been victimized or ostensibly victimized become dispositive of the question. So this is another area where a liberal idea of like there being some kind of due process gives way to something that is part of the ideological succession. So I think this is something that you're touching on it seems to me very, very important in the successor ideology, but perhaps a little conceptually distinct from what we've been talking about. There's a connection there, but I think it's a slightly separate point. So, so far we've focused on this idea that our society doesn't just contain injustice, it's dominated by injustice, its nature is injustice. This is an interconnected system of domination. And so a fight against any element of it is part of a good fight and should be encouraged. I guess the point that you're making right now about impact versus intent, which is very important, I think, seems slightly separate from, right? I mean, it seems to go together with the sort of therapeutic mold of a lot of this successor ideology, with a sense that, you know, to be hurt by words is the same as to be hurt physically or violence, that lived experience is a form of access to truth, which rational discussion is not, so that if this hurt me, then it is the truth that you did something wrong, irrespective of whether you know, there's no rational standards by which to say, actually, in this particular case, it was not reasonable to be offended, because getting the elements of style from your boss in a magazine is not, in fact, an offensive act, especially if he's given the same book to other people. Tell me about that element of a successor ideology. How does that relate to what we've been talking about? It's because reason itself within this ideology is portrayed as one of those incentive structures, norms, customs, and precedents that are fatally integrated into these forms of white domination. And 
you know, this all proceeds from the experiences that people have had in the past where there was a monopoly on reason held upon a certain group of people and they were able to qualify the grievances that others had about them as being beneath the level of rationality. But the response on their part has not been to argue on behalf of a higher rationality, but to say that, oh no, in fact, rationality itself is nothing but a mask by which power regularizes its operations, stores its legitimacy, and imposes silence upon those who are unable to speak it in its language. This seems to me like a very crucial intellectual disagreement, which surfaces in different ways in different contexts, but I see it popping up again and again and again, which is that liberalism formulates a set of standards and ideals for what a decent and just society would look like. And of course, like any set of standards and ideals, no society ever lives up to them. You know, you can live in a Islamic theocracy, but of course the reality of that society won't in fact be living up to the standards you set out. That's just the truth of human societies, that whatever ideal you try to implement, they will never fully live up to it. And now I think the liberal response to that recognition is to say, well, look, we'll never have a perfectly just society, but obviously the thing you're calling to our attention is troubling and bad, and we should think about how to remedy that, to get closer to our ideals. Whereas the standard reaction from within the successor ideology is to say, well, haha, the hypocrisy of this society proclaiming those ideals without fully living up to it just shows that those ideals are A, just a fig leaf, but just a smokescreen to allow the operation of the system of oppression and injustice. And B, the right response is not to try and to live up to the ideal, but to get rid of this ideal entirely. There are movements toward renewed segregationism that push against the equipoise that we established in the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The law does not exactly say race neutrality, but it says that we're going to prohibit discrimination on the basis of race. And that has been our popular understanding of that. But the movement wants to place more and more emphasis on race in order to move society in the direction of ever more overtly sort of distributing opportunity on the basis of it. And so like many of these kind of liberal ideals that were part of the previous racial constitution that was worked out in that period, which involved many pretty stark departures from a classical liberal understanding of the way sort of individuals should relate to one another and relate to the state. It called for affirmative action and so on and so forth. But there was a basic kind of equipoise that we reached that was controversial on both sides of, of the equation. There were always people who wanted the government to do more. There were always people who wanted to do less. And in some sense, the politics of the United States from that period on was a conflict between those who thought not enough was done and those who thought that more were done. But over the last 20 years or so, there has been sort of an intellectual movement and an activist movement within the larger society that began flowering, especially in recent years, whereby that old sort of equipoise has been overtaken by those who have this particular idea of the world as sort of norm to the standards of whiteness, and that whiteness has to be dismantled. And it's that dismantling includes the very ideals by which we sort of judge these institutions to be themselves inadequate. We're removing that and we're saying that, no, it's actually all simply about power. Like the distribution of the world as resources and opportunities in the world as it is, is entirely a function of power, despite the fact 
that to the extent that whiteness is presented as this normative standard, we now have the example of the Asian American who ends up disrupting it. I'd love to come back actually to the role of Asian Americans in all of this, which is really, really interesting. And I'd actually love to know a little bit about your evolution of thinking on that topic as well. But, you know, there's one thing that I'm missing in all of this discussion, which is in philosophy, we have a term of rational reconstruction, right? Where you're trying to give the most systematic and coherent version of somebody's thought rather than the thought as it actually presents itself. And I think in a way, your discussion of successor ideology is an attempt at rational reconstruction of trying to connect all of the dots. But it seems to me that a lot of the people who are quote-unquote woke, a lot of the people who are pushing for social justice, wouldn't recognize themselves as thinking all of those things, right? They may think some of those things. They may be influenced by the sort of underlying logic of what you're saying, but they certainly wouldn't put it in those terms. And so I don't think that we've worked out in this conversation yet what it is that's appealing to them about this intellectual movement or this way of seeing the world. Why is it that elements of a successor ideology seem to have such a pull on part of a population in a way that liberalism does not? I think the microaggression account and the idea conforms to many people's experience and it helps them understand aspects of their experience that they feel was denied to them under the sort of previous dispensation. So the microaggression account is just one sort of small aspect, like an overall model of the world in which sort of the uh, remaining disparities of the world can be explained through the continuation of a kind of pervasive but invisibly operating system of domination. So that's the basis of its appeal. Microaggressions is a term of which I'm slightly skeptical because I think that either something really is an aggression, and then I think the word micro is a little misleading, or it's a way of finding an appropriateness in things like giving the elements of style where there really is none. So I sort of want to say, you know, half of microaggressions are actual aggressions, and we should talk about them as such, and then half of them, I think, are not in fact problematic. And so, so there's something about the term that gives me pause. But I guess the question is, I can absolutely see a stereotypical microaggression when, you know, you walk up to an Asian American person, say, where are you from? Where are you really from? Et cetera, et cetera. But I, I absolutely get why that's alienating. Why can't that be expressed within the older language? Is this a failure of liberals to make room for those critiques and to express them within our own language? Or why is it that the recognition of the fact that that's not a very nice thing to do to somebody and that's an annoying experience that some of our fellow citizens make and we should be conscious of that, why is that formulation of it so much less satisfying than the formulation of, ah, you see, the fact that somebody asked you where you're really from shows that the whole society is white supremacist and we need to get rid of the basic foundational values of our society in order to remedy that. I mean, it's not obvious to me why that would be the conclusion that many people come to. You know, it was an analysis that was elaborated. There's a permanent activist class that is deeply invested in it as the basis of its continued existence. Because the sort of system of white supremacy, as it was understood in 1963, it was, in fact, dismantled in 1964. And yet disparities continued on. 
And there were a couple of different accounts of why those disparities continued on. And one of them culminated in this kind of new Jim Crow style of history and critique, which is core to the Black Lives Matter movement. Some of it had to do with sort of like new scholarship into the ways the government through redlining and so forth encouraged segregation even in the North. And so there's these like material structural accounts of the continuation of racism and racial disadvantage. But then there's also this psychological dimension that speaks to an overall change in our understanding of the human personality as one that is susceptible to trauma and that is definable by the oppression and the domination that it experiences. And so like the interlocking of this kind of racial discourse and the overlay onto this of a certain idea that tutelary institutions, universities, and increasingly now governments, HR departments, and corporations have to take a new kind of responsibility for the psychic well-being of those within its midst to layer atop the sort of moral imperative and the moral prestige of the continuation of the civil rights movement on top of that is very polemically powerful. It allows for the articulations of new forms of regulation and governmentality that like a particular class has an interest in elaborating. And they have an interest in elaborating simply because they are the administrators, lawyers who derive their incomes and their sinecures through it, but who also take as axiomatic this account of the operations of power and the nature of the world that I've described. Generations have been instructed into this view and the predecessor ideology that still obtains in the larger world has been ousted from hegemony within particular settings, including education schools, graduate schools of education, and so forth, and other places that make this world. And so it is a kind of moral entrepreneurial project on behalf of people who get degrees in various studies and then go off and have created a drive path for them into corporations, nonprofits, and the educational apparatus. People buy it also for the reasons that I just described. People buy it and it's becoming like a new actual baseline for people's under like self-understanding and generative of people's actual subjective experiences of the world. So let's get back to the very interesting role of Asian Americans in this. You were saying that they disrupt the system in some kind of way. And I suppose the reason for that is that the plausibility of a lot of this account of systemic domination is that even though we have made real progress towards having a formal equality of opportunity, and there's no longer any very straightforward discrimination going on in our society, certainly not legally sanctioned discrimination. In fact, the economic outcomes of African Americans are much worse than those of white Americans. And so that raises a certain amount of plausibility to this idea that really all of your oppression is sort of hidden in the secret workings of the system and that that's what you need to dismantle. Asian Americans, however, do very, very well. And not only Indian Americans who tend to be hyper-selected. And so when they come in, they already tend to come from elite families within India on average. But also a lot of Chinese American immigrants, for example, who really are quite poor, whose parents are cab drivers in Queens and so on, yet they dominate the selective schools in New York City and so on. So tell me about how Asian Americans do or don't fit into the scheme and how that puts pressure on it. Well, so the average per capita income for Asian males has been greater than white males for a certain number of years. Now, the average Asian female income just recently surpassed that of the white male, the allegedly hegemonic actor within this system. And the Asian white achievement gap, which redounds to the favor of Asian Americans, 
continues to grow. And the white Asian test gap, I think it's more than 10% on average. And I recently saw that the percentage of Asian Americans that gets above a 700 on the SAT is now 25%, like a quarter of Asian Americans who take it. And so like for other groups, it's like drastically lower, including for whites. And so a system that takes tests into consideration was once seen as an instrument of white domination, but that system no longer has white people dominating that system. It's now Asian American. So Asian Americans make up 15% of the New York City school population, but they're 50% of those who test into the specialized high schools. And so it isn't any surprise now that we're in the process of dismantling test-based admissions, not just in New York City, but also in other places that have it, including Lowell and San Francisco, which recently moved from a grades and test-based admission system to a lottery. And also at Thomas Jefferson High School, which is a magnet school in Fairfax, Virginia, which is typically seen as the best public high school in America. So the specialized high school in New York City, there's been more pushback from politically engaged Asian Americans, and they've defended that system. The reality of the matter is, is that when you parachute people into a culture in large numbers who happen to come from a culture that has been determining the life chances of their young people on the basis of a single high-stakes examination for a thousand years, and where henceforth a culture of test preparation has emerged, the outcomes are going to be similar to the ones that we see. So Stuyvesant High School, which is the kind of flagship of the specialized high school, is 70, sometimes 80% Asian. And there's like this tremendous movement on those who claim to be engaged in an egalitarian struggle against white supremacy to dismantle that system. But what we're actually talking about is taking away resources from Asian Americans while telling ourselves we're fighting white supremacy. And it tells us something important about the whiteness all right, of the inherent whiteness of those norms, which in turn tells us something about the structure of norms, customs, precedents, which allegedly are instruments of white domination. Norms like perfectionism or worship of a written word are somehow white supremacist when actually societies like China's have practiced them for a very long time. And when immigrants from China are able to outcompete whites on those metrics. I think that's very clear. I'm interested in how, I mean, I think one of the things we've seen emerge over the last 10 years, which I found really fascinating, you know, as a political scientist and intellectual historian, is the emergence of a cleavage that really wasn't clear until quite recently. I wrote a memoir about growing up Jewish in Germany, which, you know, in some ways deals with things like microaggressions. And I don't think that it was a woke memoir, but it certainly also wasn't perhaps as critical of some of those elements of how one might respond to a dominant culture as I would now be. You know, I'm self-critical of elements of my own book in retrospect, I think. I mean, you wrote a very, very viral article, cover story for New York Magazine, which became the foundation of the most recent book called Paper Tiger about the experience of Asian Americans in the United States. I'd be interested in hearing how your thinking on what it is to be an Asian American in the United States has evolved between the time you wrote that story and today. Well, Paper Tigers looked at the Stuyvesant phenomenon and it talked to people about the disappointment that came with adhering to 
a sort of legacy Asian American approach to their upbringings and their ascents into the professional world and the disappointments that they experienced as they entered into a society that doesn't actually determine outside of particular scholastic environment, doesn't actually determine like your place within the hierarchy on the basis of that. So in some ways, it's a piece that's like very consistent with this kind of post-liberal account of the way the structures of domination end up recapitulating themselves. Right. So that's what I was sort of trying to say, I think. But what the piece is, is an account of Asian Americans are so successful in formalized schooling and so on, and yet the number of Asian American CEOs is not all that high. So at the very highest level, you then end up with underrepresentation. And why is that? And at the time, you could say that they were virtually absent from the wider culture. And to some extent, that still remains true, right? There are very few Asian Americans fit very uneasily within the sort of American racial imaginary and are subject to certain stereotypes. And also subject to this thing that I ended up writing about in a Harper's piece, which is simply that the microaggression is an attempt to kind of theorize and above all operationalize an intervention into the sphere of like daily intimate life, into the racially inflected status politics of everyday life by like creating this penalty where you can intervene, where you can punish people for their underlying psychological propensities. And I wrote this essay where I talk about the diary of this guy called Aaron Schwartz, and it doesn't really matter who he is. He was a, at one point a student at Stanford, and he confesses to being racist, right? And he says, I was in a room at a computer science seminar, and I only looked at the white people or some of the black people, uh, but I was surrounded by Asian people, and they didn't seem individuated to me. My eyes would just kind of glide over them, and there was an Asian guy sitting next to me who spoke to me. And... I imagined him, sort of, I perceived him as having an accent, even though I knew that he actually didn't, and I brushed him off. And so, you know, he's just talking about sins of omission, but like the microaggression account says that like, when you iterate that over the course of a lifetime, you can end up in a very different place. And it's just the good not done, the sort of helping hand not given, the sort of extra quantum of friendliness that may be extended to somebody of a particular kind of person and not extended to another one. And this is something that like people find appealing, women find this appealing, non-white people find this appealing, because they suspect that it is true. So I guess let me put that question to you, because as you're saying, Paper Tiger could have been read in that mold, perhaps was read by many people in that mold. And you clearly were attracted to that account of a world in some ways. So why is it that even though in your own life you've felt the pull of this, we should not embrace the successor ideology? Because the interventions end up being so heavy-handed that they end up threatening values that are at the core of our ability to exist with one another in diversity. So, But there is a kind of ambivalence that even now I feel, because on the one hand, it is about building power. It is about building power on behalf of certain categories of people. And there is no question that like those who have engaged in this kind of activism have built power on their behalf. And they've made it so that people have to be silent. And they've made it so that people have to sort of repeat loyalty oaths. And they've made it so people have to like scourge themselves in public. And that is a kind of power that you have over other people. But ultimately, like it's not ultimately the power that I think one wants to have or win by virtue of because too much ends up being sacrificed in the process. Why does one not want to have that power and what is it that's being sacrificed in the process? 
Because in the process, what you're doing is you must end up talking about dismantling reason, about dismantling individualism, about turning appreciation or understanding of art and literature into a series of political litmus tests. All of these things are anathema to other values that I hold. I'm not simply a power-seeking individual that wants to make other people love me because they have been coerced into it by a powerful social movement that I stand at the head of. And indeed, that kind of coerced love, it's not actually love, right? And so, like, I proceed from the assumption that ideally one would recognize the value of those things, and that's, like, one of the purposes of art, and that's one of the purposes that I attempted to try to do, make people understand and feel empathy for in my writing, without actually wanting to, like, launch a social movement on the basis of it that would be ruthless about like obtaining those gains. And it's just a matter of like, I see that there's a propriety of different spheres of activity. And the one that tries to transform the world inevitably moves in a direction that I take to be totalitarian and to make the world in absolute terms to be worse. It's interesting that you focused mostly on the other values that are at stake which of course I agree with and I think is important. It can also be bad for the person. It can be psychologically disinhibiting or dysfunctional for the individual to sort of go through life always assuming the worst of everyone at all times. Because A, it's not often true. B, to the extent that it's not often true, it can actually summon up the very thing that one assumes to be the case. Because, you know, like if you're constantly on edge about everything all the time, this is something that other people recognize, that they feel, that they respond to. There's an intersubjective process at work here where you help to create your own realities. And so many of the people who are most insistently committed to this ideology ended up committed to the ideology precisely because they did follow this cascade that I described, where they came to be obsessed with these things to the exclusion of all other values and were able to consistently exploit the basic asymmetry that is at work behind the ideological succession, which is that like some people care a lot more about this than other people. And, you know, those who are like more heavily invested in something tend to be able to prevail against those who are not as heavily invested in those things. And that's the basic engine that drives all of this. You know, I think about this, and again, I want to emphasize and recognize that there are many dissimilarities, but there's also some similarities to my experience growing up Jewish in Germany. And I think I, at one point, became hypersensitive to the real slights and oddnesses of what it is to be Jewish in Germany. I mean, recently I was on the phone with an editor there and I was explaining why somebody who had been accused of anti-Semitism in Germany was not in any reasonable account an anti-Semite. And she said, well, don't you need to somehow, you know, mention perhaps that you're a person of sort of Jewish background, or, you know, she was sort of awkwardly asking whether I should mention that somehow. And at that point, the phone conversation broke down. And, you know, she called me again a little while later. We, I mean, we reconnected, you know, within a minute or two. And she had thought that I had hung up in a fit of pique because she had somehow <laughs> offended me mm. by, by how she asked questions or something like that. And I felt when I was living in Germany very deeply that this kind of philosemitism ensured that I would never truly be and feel German, right? That that kind of treatment with kid gloves, while certainly coming from a very good place, was just deeply alienating. And I think, you know, two lessons I take from this is that one, you know, be careful what you wish for. I think if you have, if you manage to generalize that form of careful treatment, it's, it is actually deeply alienating. 
But two, I think now that I'm not living in Germany and I sort of have come to terms with some of those questions of identity and so on, I can sort of laugh it off and actually enjoy it. I was like, this is hilarious. I'm going to have a good anecdote. Whereas five or 10 years ago, I think I would have actually been somewhat shaken up by that experience precisely because it sort of demonstrated my non-belonging in a certain kind of way. I guess I fearful that one of the elements of this ideology is that it's self-fulfilling in a certain kind of way and it'll make life miserable for everybody, including some of those people who rightly are angry at the way they're being treated now. It burrows into people's insecurities and it activates their suspicion of the world and it weaponizes it and instrumentalizes it on behalf of a power-seeking movement that is seeking to make sort of open, free exchange in everyday life, as well as the kind of open and unfettered intellectual discourse that we need to understand, to come to the root of our remaining racial difficulties. It makes it virtually impossible because we proceed from the assumption that we're holding a gun to people's heads. And there was an incident recently where some Northwestern University law professors, including, I think, the dean, who sort of began a conversation by confessing to their racism and to their white supremacy. And nothing really edifying can emerge from that level of either preference falsification or ideological thought reform that we see at work in places like that. We have to be able to say the thing still exists within our society. But when Orlando Patterson in 1998 wrote that no other society prior to our own has made the progress that we've made upon this issue, and he was even able to say, from the vantage point of 1998, citing Colin Powell, we can even conceive of this hitherto inconceivable thing, which is the black president. So this was before that thing had actually been achieved. When he said all of those things, those things were true. And like, we can't lose recognition of that fact simply because we don't want to fall into complacency, but we also don't want to lose recognition of that basic fact that like people within a free society have the capacity without the need of constant regulation and surveillance by constituted authorities, as well as by outraged mobs, have the ability to work together. It won't be perfect. There will be tensions. But like such a thing as goodwill can be manifest and in order for it to be manifest ought to be assumed until there is a reason not to. And to the extent that there is now this kind of dogmatic insistence that even the most innocent expressions of our basic values are irretrievably polluted by this thing called white supremacy, like we won't be able to make any progress and we generate the potential to make things a lot worse for everyone. Yeah, I think one interesting element of this, which makes the success ideology and some related things more plausible in the public mind than they should be, is that it's tempting to think overemphasizing injustice is costless, right? Like we should rather be oversensitive to unjust things that are happening than undersensitive. And I think that's broadly right. I think it's better to live in a society where you're too aware of injustices than not aware enough. But it's not costless. And one of the reasons why it's not costless is that accurately gauging the extent of injustice is actually an important way to understand whether you go in the right direction or not. That if it was true that white supremacy may have become more subterranean over the last 50 years, but that it really hasn't been reduced in any way, that the United States in 2020 is as unjust as it was in 1960, then perhaps we should change a whole lot of things right? Then perhaps it is in fact justified to say, perhaps we need to rewrite the constitution, perhaps we need to get rid of capitalism, because clearly nothing is improving. 
Whereas if, as I believe accurately, you perceive that we're far from ideal and there are real injustices, but certainly the society has progressed in the last 50 or 60 years, then you're much more likely to come to the conclusion that, you know, there's some things we should change and some ongoing injustices we should passionately fight against, but also we're going in the right direction and that implies that some of the basic things about our society are in fact worth keeping. In the mid-2000s, Andrew Hacker did a study of racial attitudes, and he reached the conclusion that only a small percentage of white Americans still retained overtly racist attitudes, something like 15%. But because of the sort of demographic preponderance of white people in America, this meant that sort of overt racists actually outnumbered black people by two to one. And so this was very... Interesting. It can be a small minority of the white population, but it's large enough to be a psychological blight on the lives of black Americans. And we face this kind of dilemma. In my view, it's psychologically dysfunctional and unhealthy for society and for an individual to sort of like dwell on victimization as constitutive of the self. On the other hand, there is a subpopulation that was systematically victimized by American society. And so the question is always like, how do we maintain a balance where we preserve the integrity of the institutions that are valuable and that actually play a role in the move toward equality while giving deference, showing due sensitivity, making just historical reparation for previous harms to this other group. And there's always going to be a push and pull on this. The ideological succession is about a particular group wanting to undo a particular consensus that we had emerged around and that had lasted throughout the post-civil rights era. And to say that in order to like obtain equality, we actually do have to create apparatuses of psychological thought reform. And we actually do have to sort of limit free speech. And we actually like do have to sort of like demand explicit statements of fealty to various ideological statements. And elite institutions have been coalescing around this view because there's so much sort of moral prestige and moral power connected behind it. But inevitably, it puts enormous pressure on these other values that also make coexistence within diversity possible. So that's the thing that we're like dealing with. And to the extent that like there are people whose job it is to push us in a certain direction, there have to be other people whose job it is to say, well, we're going to take on this thing that is valuable, reasonable, and makes sense. And that doesn't do undue violence to like underlying institutions that allow us to live together. And we're not going to take these other things. And whether or not that latter thing happens is something that only the future can determine. Well, so this is actually the last question that I had for you, which is that the successor ideology implies that the successor will, in fact, win and succeed. By definition, if it succeeds onto what came before, that means that it's going to triumph. Are you that pessimistic about it? Do you think the successor ideology will, in fact, be the new dispensation that controls our political and intellectual life? Or do you think it's more likely that there's pushback? One of the reasons why I think there may be pushback is that, you know, there's this odd thing that people sometimes say to me, where they go, look, none of this can actually work. You know, none of this can actually dominate. So why are you spending all of your time fighting against it? Just wait for it to fall apart. And I was saying, as you were saying, well, some of the people need to be stating the intellectual mistakes of this and the ways in which it actually will make things worse in order to ensure that it doesn't win. But in a way, I agree with them, which is to say that I actually think when you see the operation of this, it actually becomes so difficult to sustain cooperation. 
it becomes so difficult to have a rational system where if you're able to make people lose their jobs or positions, even if you make false, obscurious accusations against them, you know, eventually so many people are going to be fired and things just falls apart. And, you know, there's going to be a counter-reaction against it. What's important to me is for the counter-reaction not be reactionary. And for it to not be reactionary, it needs to be people who actually have a commitment to racial equality and so on who are pushing against it. But I do think that the counter-reaction will come precisely because I don't think a pure instantiation of a success ideology is workable. So I guess, do you share that optimism? Are you as pessimistic as the name of a successor ideology implies? What do you think are some of the likely scenarios? I've always said that cancel culture sort of represents an as yet unconsummated will to power, right? Like what they ultimately seek is law reform. And what they ultimately sought is the kind of policing of thought that the Title IX regime within universities ended up moving into. And there will be the extension of that beyond the kind of sexual harassment realm into the racial correctness realm. And the universities live under that regime. And for the most part, like, it's fairly easy to operate within those spaces and not fall afoul of them. But there is a kind of overall awareness and chilling effect in the mind that that apparatus is there. And so the kind of law reform that we're talking about that would move us in that direction would be one where that is a pervasive force in society. And some people, there will be false positives, but like most people will be able to go about their day in much the way that like people were able to go about their day, even in the former Soviet Union, right? But things would be worse in ways that I think it's worth moderating and holding off that system. So I don't see it as like a total victory of the system, but I do see it as they're going to have a good run. They're going to have a good 10 to 15 years. Goldman Sachs is going to have a diversity score for the people they do business with. You know, there's talk of the ratings agencies doing the same thing. Yelp is going to be putting information about businesses accused of racism. They haven't said what the due process or if there is going to be any of all of that. And so there is this kind of inner logic of believe the accuser, the accused is presumptively wrong, that it's all being institutionalized. And in my view, it will make things demonstrably worse. Like it's not going to be a necessarily like radical, shattering departure from life as most of us know it for most of the time. And it will be very, very hard for people to push back against it because there is this kryptonite, right, of the racism accusation. This is why you have to go into specific cases and just show that in its operation, we're not actually talking about anything most people would intuitively recognize as an ill-intended act. But what we're actually policing are these things like the drunken white. And what we're doing, like we are incentivizing people to see themselves, you know, within those terms and building their sense of subjectivity around. So the question is like, all right, we're going to build out this apparatus. It's going to enforce a reflexive degree of extra sensitivity onto things. Maybe we'll live with it for a while and we'll accommodate to it. And then some of the air can come out of it once it has done its work, right? And once people feel a greater sense of inclusion or belonging, you know, it will naturally kind of fade away. But if the contrary is true, right, if the other hypothesis is true, that like it actually instills and inculcates at the base of people's subjectivity, a sense of their vulnerability and their marginalization, which ends up being the kind of locus of their power and their ability to make appeals and demands upon power, then it will only grow. And so at that point, then we will see whether or not right-thinking intellectuals who are in good color 
<laughs> will be willing in large numbers to articulate the kind of criticisms that I'm speaking about today. When it becomes like increasingly unmistakable, and when the apparatus of sort of enforcement and policing of contrary opinions remains in place, will people be willing to speak up under those conditions? And it's not clear to me. Maybe they will, but perhaps they will not. <laughs> and that's something that only the future will ensure. I'm going to do my own very small part to be someone who keeps these contrary ideas in circulation. And perhaps at some point, others will be willing to join. Well, on this neither optimistic nor pessimistic, but uncertain note about the future. Thank you so much, Wes. Yep, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.